0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Peter Heller, author of the novels The Dog Stars, The Painter, and Celine. He is also a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, Men's Journal, and National Geographic Adventure. His nonfiction books include The Whale Warriors, Kook, and Hell or High Water. His latest novel, Celine, is modeled after his mother, who was a private detective in Brooklyn who specialized in reuniting families. In the fictitious story, Celine is presented with a case of finding a young woman's missing photographer father who is presumed to have been attacked by a bear in Yellowstone 20 years earlier. We began the interview, which was recorded on Skype, discussing the personal nature of the novel and Peter Heller's mother.
1: My mother died two and a half years ago, and I think it was about six months after that, I sat down to write my next novel, and I began with the story of the young woman who comes to Celine, who's a private eye, to ask for help in finding her father, who went missing, supposedly in a bear attack over 20 years before, and I began writing the novel with this young woman, Gabriella's story. I always start writing from a first line and I'm, you know, I'm interested in the music of language really more than anything. And so I always start with a first line and I let the rhythm of it, the cadence, the music of it carry me into the story, which is sort of an odd way to write a novel. I'm not sure how many people do it like that, but I do. And I began, the I, this novel began with something like my mother's name was, Amana Ambrosio. In Tupi Warani, Amana means night rain. And I love the sound of it. And I began with Gabriella's story, which is very interesting and sort of hard and rich. And I was writing, you know, I'd I'd written for a couple of days. And before you know it, in chapter one, uh, Gabriella calls Celine, this private eye who happens to be a lot like my mother, and then the story took off, and then I realized that who I really wanted to write about more than anything was my mom, and I think the novel was a way for me to spend another, you know, eight months with her, a year, you know, to, ha- to hang out with her every day, <laughs> and I think that may be why I wrote it, to sort of deal with my own grief and to, and to just be with her.
0: Tell me a little bit more about her life in your book. Celine is upper crust, sixty-eight years old, private detective in Brooklyn. Has lived a very privileged life, but definitely had her own hardships and holds on to a lot of secrets. Was that your mom?
1: Yeah, um, my mom, uh, like Celine, uh, she was born in Paris before the war. All the backstory is pretty much you know as written in the book. She was born to an American. Harry Watkins, his wife, Barbara, he worked for Morgan's Bank in Paris, and right before the Germans marched in, well, a couple of months before they marched on Paris, my grandmother fled with her three daughters. They got to Marseille, they took an ocean liner to New York, and my grandmother told me that my mom would go around Manhattan listening to groups of people and trying to decide who is a Nazi spy. And all she really wanted to do was go back to Europe and fight in the French resistance. And this is a seven year old kid. And she was a wonderful artist all growing up, just the way Celine is. She went to college, got out of college, married soon after, the way a lot of women in her generation did. And I came along a year later and I kind of probably squelched her ambitions to be in the CIA. (laughs) <laughs> her, her special ops ambitions. But a while later, she started working for a detective agency, just like Celine. And she got her PI license and almost immediately was contacted by the FBI, just like Celine. I put that story in the book because it's so fun. But they wanted help in catching someone who had a guy who had perpetrated a large bank fraud on the Bank of New York. And they thought he was in Southern Connecticut somewhere nearby his family. And they didn't really have an agent who could, you know, mingle with the set in old Greenwich. And so they somehow got wind of mom and they called her up. And that was her first case with a perp, (laughs) just like Celine. So
0: your whole life, was she doing this?
1: Pretty much. I think she started, uh, she got her PI license when I was in high school. So it wasn't until then, but she, um, you know, just like Celine, she lived in this loft uh, right on the Brooklyn, on the dock. You know, right under the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, kitty corner to the River Cafe. There, um, it's a spectacular, a spectacular studio loft with huge windows that looked onto the bridge and the East River. And she and her husband Pete, she 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 got together with Pete when I was just out of college. He's not my dad, and. This guy's a you know, seventh generation mainer, doesn't say much as in the book. And they began to use their rather remarkable investigative skills. They were both crack investigators, and they began to use their skills to to reunite birth families, you know, to find if a if a mother had to give up her daughter when she was fifteen, or you know, she was a drug addict and had to give up the child, or a family got, you know, split apart in any way and 20 thirty years later, the kid or the mother wanted to find the other. That's what they did. And they had a almost hundred percent success rate in finding you know in locating these people in you know really really cold cases with um, oftentimes bad information. They were remarkable.
0: You're listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Peter Heller, author of the novel Celine. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Did it feel like the stakes were higher for you, though, when you were writing this, or you it didn't feel that different from your other fiction?
1: No, it didn't. I, I, I wouldn't say it felt that different because, you know, the stakes are always really high for me. I mean, now that you've asked that question, I've never been asked that question before, but it occurs to me that in the Dog Stars, as I was with living with Hig and that little airport in Erie and... You know, with his dog Jasper, uh, nine years after Superflu killed almost everyone in this post-apocalyptic, bleak landscape. Well, the landscape wasn't bleak because it was Colorado. It was beautiful. But that was, you know, that was the only thing that wasn't bleak. (laughs) When I was in that world, I was transported as I was writing. And I felt like I was there. I felt like I was with those guys. And so the stakes for me couldn't have been higher, which is – I think, to me, the most remarkable thing about fiction and, and about writing it, you know, as a reader can be transported and enthralled and enchanted and taken away from their life as they read a good work of fiction so that they almost don't know where they are anymore. So it was for me in writing, you know, all the fiction books and writing The Painter when I was with Jim Stegner, The Painter. You know, he's, he's running from a killer and he's fishing and he's painting I was right there with him. I, I felt like I was him. It's the strangest thing. It's It's hard to describe. And so I wouldn't say the stakes were higher in this book, but I would say that I knew I was writing about my mom and I wanted so hard to capture her essence, her remarkable, amazing, quirky essence so that the readers could get it. And I'm not sure I did it. You know, I think, you know, Flannery O'Connor said writers are always reaching after that sea creature that's always swimming off into the depths and you can never quite capture it. And that's what it felt like for me. You know, I I felt like I I missed really getting my mom <laughs> across. But it wasn't like that for people who I mean my sisters thought it was awesome. So
0: <laughs> So she kind of inhabits two worlds. She's at least during this novel, she's you know a New Yorker. She lives in Brooklyn, but she's very comfortable out West. She goes to Yellowstone. She basically goes to her, her son's house in Denver and picks up the RV and then goes on to um, Wyoming. And I'm curious about your experience straddling two worlds or living in two worlds. I don't know how long you lived in New York, but I know you were born there.
1: Yeah. I grew up in Brooklyn Heights and I lived there till I was 15. And then I was a, I I just knew I was an outdoorsman, even as a, you know, as a little kid. And I begged my parents to send me to Vermont to high school. I had a lot of family, my dad's, um, brother and all his kids, he had four kids lived in Putney, Vermont. And I just asked to be sent up there when I was 15 so that I could be in the woods, you know? And I, I loved it. You know, I, I lived in a teepee one whole year through the Vermont winter and, you know, cut all my own firewood and, um, did a lot of climbing and running rivers. And um, so that was, you know, I mean, I left the city, but I would always go back. My family lived there. And when I got out of college, I had, I had, I had come out to Colorado to kayak with some friends and I was so blown away that you could, I, I remember we went to the Arkansas and we paddled around Buena Vista and one through six and up by Granite and down through Salida. And I just remember, you know, I couldn't believe we were paddling this amazing whitewater beneath snow-capped peaks, and there were elk up in the woods. And as soon as I got out of school, pretty much, I lived a year in L.A., but then I I went straight back to Colorado, and I and I and I you know, have been here since. And the West, pretty much, you know, um, you know, from early 20s on, it just, um, you know, it got a hold of me like so many so many remittance men who've <laughs> come from back east from Europe, you know, historically, everybody in the West is, you know, except the Native Americans, uh, and even they too, you know, came from someplace else. And so, um, you know, I, I became a Westerner, you know, really fast early on. And, uh, at the same time, I don't think I would have had the appreciation, you know, for this country out here if I hadn't grown up back East and felt constricted and felt constricted, not only by, by the the number of people and the, and the cities and, um, the, the weather, (laughs) the lack of big open spaces, but also, you know, back East is a lot more class conscious. It's, there's a lot, there's, it's not conscious, but there's more of a look over to Europe, you know, um, for culture in some ways back East. I was so happy to be away from all of that and to be in a place where it felt like anything was possible, and at the same time, I love to go visit. I love to visit my family back in the city. I love, you know, hopping on the subway and running around, and And I'm always amazed at how home I, at home I feel. I mean, I know the stops on the IRT. <laughs> I do find that after about, hmm, I'd say 10 days back in uh, New York City and then maybe a month back in northern New England, I start to um, feel... Crave, you know, uh, the big open spaces of the West, and I get so happy when I come back.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Peter Heller, author of the novel Celine. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You were saying that you began with this name Amana and her daughter, Gabriella, comes to engaged Celine to try and find her dad. Her her mom died and her dad right. went missing yep. later mm-hmm. in life, like in her twenties. And she had a really mm-hmm. difficult childhood. And I mean, that backstory involved um, her dad was a national geographic photographer and he also had roots maybe in South America. We weren't sure, but her, her mother definitely did. So mm-hmm. how did that story come about?
1: Uh, that was you know, mostly just fabricated. I, I've worked with a lot of um, photographers on different, you know, I've been a magazine journalist for decades and uh, worked with many photographers. And I found, always found photographers to be fascinating characters. Photographers tend to be very self-sufficient. They tend to enjoy working alone. They tend to be kind of loners. And uh, I think the demands of the job makes them sort of tough and iconoclastic in some ways. And I think it was a joy for me to you know, write one of these characters <laughs> who got himself into a jam and was trying to get himself out of it.
0: One of the things about Celine, her character, so she's 68 and she is a private eye and she grew up very privileged and is helping these people reunite with their families and Pete Is her second marriage and they seem very close and it's clear that they really love each other, but she also has secrets from him. And I was wondering your thoughts about having secrets in a marriage, big secrets.
1: In my marriage, you know, my wife, Kim, who's also my first reader, and she's uh, a really hugely valuable part of my whole writing process because I end up reading chunks of my book as i'm writing them to her out loud and she's just an amazingly intuitive dead-on reader slash listener and she always says um you know when we go out and about with friends and the parties and i tell stories she says all the time she said no i never knew that (laughs) i never knew that about you we got to go out to dinner with someone for me to find out this huge part of your life <laughs> and i think i i love that you know i think i think that's cool i think it's wonderful to have uh i don't i don't know i mean they you know they say what do they say about secrets that they they kill you or are they make you sick or something like that i sort of don't agree i sort of think that it's really important in a good relationship to have mystery and to you know unpeel someone like an onion over a lifetime is, is, is a really wonderful thing. I mean, as long, you know, as long as there's not some secret that's, you know, really malevolent and I don't think Celine's secret is malevolent. I think it's just a wound. And, uh, I, I think it's okay to, to keep a wound, you know, harbor a wound, keep it secret until it's, it's ready to be shared.
0: This novel, um, is so heavy in dialogue and I was wondering if that's a function of mystery, uh, because it's always going to be a challenge for the writer to decide how to reveal information. And it's not, you kind of change points of view a little bit. I mean, you're able to get into many people's heads, but you don't often do that. I'm, I'm curious about writing the dialogue and if, if that struck you that it, you had to have it so dialogue heavy as a novel.
1: You know, Mitzi, I always, I just, when I'm writing fiction, I don't um, decide a lot of stuff, which is another odd thing. I mean, I start with the first line, you know, I let the the music, the language carry me into the story. Uh, It's pretty much the, you know, it's the role of the sentences and the sounds of them and the rhythm of them that carry and determine the narrative, which is, as I said, it's an odd way to work. I mean, it's just the opposite of writing an outline or you know, um, you know, having plot up on a whiteboard, you know, I don't, I don't do that. And so, um, there was really, you know, in the same thing with the dialogue, there was really no decision to write a lot of dialogue. I was just writing along and, and, uh, people started talking and, and I'm not, you know, being facetious when I say that. I mean, literally, you know, I'll be writing a scene and then, you know, someone will walk into the scene or, The two people in the scene, or three, will start having a conversation, and I just let them speak. And it's so fun for me. You know, it's like I have as much fun listening to those conversations as I'm writing them, as I hope the reader does when they're reading them. So, yeah, it wasn't really a conscious decision in the beginning as I started writing it. You know, I I wrote the first line. I It began as a first-person narrative because it was in the voice of Gabriella talking about her mother. My mother's name was Amana. Yeah, Amana Ambrosio. Um, So it began almost, you know, I almost, I think I thought I was going to write another first-person narrative like the Dog Stars, like the Painter, have it be one character's voice the whole way. But then, as I said, you know, a couple days in, this young woman contacted Celine, and it became third-person. And as it became third-person, I got a little nervous you know it's like i have to say i had a little bit a little jolt of fear because i thought wow i've never done third person before uh with a first person narrative you can always hide behind your character you can never be as the writer you can never be more erudite you can never be smarter you can never be more witty than your character and so with third person you're like completely exposed i mean you know it's it's all up to you (laughs) And so there was that moment like, hmm, I'm going to write third person now. This will be interesting. And then I began to love it because, as you said, you know, getting into different people's heads, I began to realize, you know, you could put the camera on this person's shoulder or that person's shoulder and and, you know, start um, working the narrative from that person's point of view. And how fun was that? I found it to be in many ways, you know, a more uh, nimble Way to write, being able to you know shift your point of view around, being able to pull zoom zoom in or zoom out, and uh, so that was really fun and new for me.
0: You're listening to First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Peter Heller, author of the novel Celine. Our interview was recorded on Skype. With with this book, there's kind of three storylines. I think there's Celine and her search. There's Gabriella and her sort of perspective and pushing of the search, which is more entwined into Celine's. And then there's her son, Hank, who is on a search of his own to figure out some of the mysteries from Celine's childhood. Can you talk a little bit about his search into his mother and sort of that idea of having to find out about your parent by sleuthing instead of getting the information directly?
1: Right. Sure. Well, Hank did ask, you know, he, he got a hint from his grandmother, Babu, uh, who was, uh, you know, Celine's mom. One evening he got a hint from her that his mother might've gotten pregnant in high school. She said something about her missing a year of high school. And Hank took that to mean as he thought about it, that She probably carried the child to turn. And if she did, then he thought, I have a brother or a sister somewhere. What a a sort of amazing and shocking thing to discover. And then as Celine's older sister, Bobby, was dying in Pennsylvania and Hank was very close with her, he had spent a summer living with them. He went out to say goodbye and to stay with her for a little bit. She was at home dying at home and they have a conversation. And basically his aunt says that, yes, Celine had a child. It was a girl, her name, she called her Isabel. Wow. (laughs) What a revelation. So nothing more is said. And then the very next day, I think Bobby died. And, So Hank is left with this giant mystery. He knows he has a sister out there somewhere. And his mother just completely clams up about it. It's too painful, he guesses, for her to discuss. And she asks him not, in fact, to talk about it ever again after he brings it up the first time. And so it's left to him, you know, this is a guy who's uh, in college. You know, he's only in his, you know, he's only like 21 to try and figure out who the heck his sister is. And so that was so fun to write, too, you know, to, to go on that search with him.
0: So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Sure. You know, I'd like to read um, my I think my favorite poem. And it's also the last page of The Dog Stars. And I love this poem. It's written by Li Shang-Yin in the ninth century. Uh, he's a Tang Dynasty Chinese poet. And I hadn't thought about it for a couple of years, I don't think, until, you know, I got to the very last page of the Dog Stars and it, it kind of came ringing in, you know, out of out of the universe, the way stuff goes. And it's called When Will I Be Home? When will I be home? I don't know. In the mountains, in the rainy night, the autumn lake is flooded. Someday. We will be back together again. We will sit in the candlelight by the west window. And I will tell you how I remembered you tonight on the stormy mountain.
0: Do you want to say anything else about it?
1: Well, it came to me. I mean, I I was my first assignment for outside when I was in my 20s. And um, it was a river expedition to the edge of the Tibetan Plateau. And it was a first descent. And it was a training run, and um, three of us were kayakers, the rest in rafts. And a guy died that first day, and he died in in the arms of two of us, and the kayakers, he went into a log jam. And he was on his honeymoon, and his wife took his ashes back to the States. And a couple days later, we met, the whole expedition met down by this river that was now it had been in flood with heavy rains in the mountains, and now it was back to this you know, lovely, rhythmic river. And we stood by the bank and we had a memorial for David, the guy who died, and I had a book of Tang Dynasty poems with me. I thought for my very first assignment, I'd bring a book of poetry from the place that I was going to sort of you know, feel the spirit of it. And I've done that since. and. So we sang Amazing Grace, which is sort of what you do when you can't think of anything else to do. And we spoke about David and I, and I read this poem and it was, when will I be home? And I love, I loved the poem. And I, you know, I kept the book by my bed table for many years. But as I said, I, I never really had thought about it for, for quite a few years. And then, you know, I got to the last page of the Dog Stars and, and there it was. And um, I just think that's interesting about fiction that, it becomes a sort of a vessel for everything important in our lives. and Lots of stuff that we know and lots of stuff that we don't even know that we know end up getting poured into a novel, and, and it's, it's, it's very exciting.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Peter Heller, author of the novel Celine. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to edit or something you just like how it turned out?
1: Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought what would be fun since I just read you the last page of The Dog (laughs) Stars. I'll read you the first page because it was my first, you know, this here. okay, here I'd written, you know, four nonfiction books and it was, you know, I decided I just want to write a novel. I've been wanting to write one since I was 11. It was time. I sat down. I started listening for The Voice and this is what, This is what I heard and what I wrote down, you know, at the coffee shop. I keep the beast running. I keep the hundred low lead on tap. I foresee attacks. I am young enough. I am old enough. I used to love to fish for trout more than almost anything. My name is Hig, one name. Big Hig, if you need another. If I ever woke up crying in the middle of a dream, and I'm not saying I did, it's because the trout are gone, everyone. Brookies, rainbows, browns, cutthroats, cutbows, everyone. The tiger left, the elephant, the ape, the baboon, the cheetah, the titmouse, the frigate bird, the pelican gray, the whale gray, the collared dove, sad but didn't cry until the last trout swam up river looking for maybe cooler water.
0: Do you want to say anything about that?
1: Well, I just didn't know. Where it came from? I didn't really know who was talking. And if, you know, a couple more pages in, I sort of thought, you know, this was a post-apocalyptic novel. This guy was a, living in a little airport with his dog, Jasper. He had an old airplane, and it was nine years after a superflu. had killed almost everybody. And I thought, you know, since I didn't plan it, you know, I, I was like, dang, I, I don't want to write a post-apocalyptic novel. But I mean, one reason is because I didn't want to write a genre book. You know, my first shot at fiction, I wanted to write just straight literary fiction. And two, I, I thought, well, this will get compared to The Road if it ever gets published. And that's not what you want to do. You know, first time out of the gate is get compared to Cormac McCarthy. So <laughs> I, I had a little trepidation, but, you know, the voice was so compelling. I just kept, kept writing. Where do you write? I write at a little coffee shop up the street. It's like five minutes up the hill. The one that I, the one that I'd written, you know, a few books in actually moved. And so I had, I had to, I had to shift, (laughs) Mm. I had to shift offices. It was a little bit of a little bit, it took a a little bit of an acclimation, but it worked out.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, So we have a place in Paonia. It's a, it's a a little Adobe house that I built. Uh, It took me like five years. I'd never built anything. It's off the grid. It's made out of these rammed earth blocks. The walls are like 18 inches thick and it backs up onto the West Elk wilderness so you could could ride out out the back door right into the mountains. I just love it there. You know, I I love to fly fish and my favorite creek in the world is a few minutes up up the road and, you know, I go there whenever I can.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: So I read out loud to my wife, Kim, and, and if she starts to nod off and fall asleep, then I know. There's too much fishing. <laughs> she'll look up and she'll say, too much fishing. And then, uh, and then my next reader is, uh, you know, my little writer's group is uh, Lisa Jones, who wrote a wonderful memoir called Broken, A Love Story, about a, an Arapaho shaman paraplegic horse whisperer. And then Helen Thorpe, who is a wonderful nonfiction writer in Denver, and uh, so those those two get it next. And, you know, what's so great about having really smart, wonderful first readers is that by the time the agent gets it or the editor, um, you've had some some really great literary minds, you know, uh, vetting it and taking, you know, uh, helping helping you get it in shape. It's a, it, it, it's a huge, huge uh, resource.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I don't, You know, when I was first starting out, I remember – I wanted to be an outdoor writer, so I was, I was living in L.A. that first year after college before I came to Colorado. I was working all these different jobs. I was trying to be a screenwriter, and um, I sent a story about hunting elk in Colorado to, like I don't know, it was like hunt- hunting magazine or guns and ammo, and they rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, you know, this Peterson publication, this is this, 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 this company that has like, you know, 100 magazines, you know, hunting, hunters, scuba, guns and animals, all that kind of stuff. They didn't take it. They said there they're, I didn't I didn't have good enough pictures. <laughs> so um, anyway, you know, you get you collect. I collected, you know, boxes of files of rejection letters, uh, you know, when I was starting out. And I think it's just part of, you know, it's part of the training. It's, it's, it's actually great because it, it toughens your skin. And, you know, one thing that I've learned uh, over the years writing is that if someone especially, you know, is willing to give you criticism and is actually willing to, you know, give your work a little bit of attention and some real thought, then it's such a huge honor. And that you really ought to should pay attention to what they say. And it's kind of, you know, that's helped a lot over the years. You know, now, you know, that I get published and now that uh, I have editors who edit and people who give strong critiques of the work, instead of feeling, you know, somehow miffed, I always feel, I always feel so honored and and so grateful.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: (laughs) Man, refractory.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Peter Heller, author of the novel, *Celine*. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.